So we're talking about Saul this morning. So, and Saul is a figure I really, you know, I look at Saul and David, and, and I have trouble sometimes understanding why Saul was such a bad king and David was such a good king. You know, Saul didn't get anybody by his wife pregnant and then kill him. But he, he had his own problems. So I want us to, to think about that over, over the next few weeks. You know, why, why Saul? Why was the kingdom taken from Saul? And some things, I'm going to kind of give you my hints. <laughs> how does he sin? But maybe, how does David sin? We're going to look at those. We planned two weeks on David. But then, how does each react when confronted with his sin? I think that, and, and I'm you know, kind of giving it away, but I, th I think this may be the key, is looking at how these men reacted when confronted with their sins. So that's where we're going to go. So why does Israel want a king in the first place? We talked about it a little bit last week. You know, they, they wanted a king. What did Samuel tell them? Oh, you want a king? Let me tell you what he's going to do. Take your sons and your daughters and put them in servitude. He's going to take your money. But anyway, they want a king. Let me get a hint here. When Samuel is at the story we're going to talk about, he's being in old age. We're going to see his last work, kind of last speech today. But he made his sons judges over Israel. First, you know, one was Joel, the second was Abijah. And his sons didn't follow, you know, they had a good father, but for whatever reason, they turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. You know, the. Had, uh, Things haven't changed a lot. They're still greedy people. There's still nepotism. You know, was it a good idea for him to name his sons as judges? Obviously not. But they're kind of running the show and they're taking advantage of it. So the people are upset. Oh, and then a comment. Maybe Saul is going to have to drain the swamp. And oh, that brings me a real quick point. I forgot. We're going to backtrack a minute. Last week... You know, I, I talked about. I said we're not going to talk about politics in here, and and I'm, I'm, but there may be some concern over that. You know, do we need to be relevant and all this? Why, why aren't we talking about politics? So I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the quick, thirty-second version of why I'm not talking about politics. I do believe we need to talk about morality. Morality is important. Okay, now I'm going to pick. I'm going to put down adultery. Are we pretty much agreed here that adultery is wrong? And I'd say if you aren't convinced of that, you probably don't want to raise your hand anyway. <laughs> so we're, we're all agreed. So let's take action. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a senator here in Tennessee, state senator. And I'm putting forth a bill. They're going to take all these adulterers and as soon as we can, once they're proven to be adulterers, we're going to give them, uh, oh, say, a 10-year prison sentence. Everybody still with me? Everybody for that? It's pretty harsh. What's going to happen to the spouse of that person when they're put in prison? They're on welfare. On welfare. And, and, and what I'm going to say, this is, a, this is morality, this is politics. 
And even though we can all agree, and I've chosen kind of an extreme example, even though we all agree on this, when it comes to a government taking action, God-fearing, Bible-literate people, are going to, even though they all agree on this, are going to disagree on this. And that's, again, I'm not worried about dividing a church when we talk about adultery or racism or, or whatever. But when we get over here and talk about specific government actions, I think we, we risk, and, and I've seen it. I've seen new Christians walk away from a church and never come back because of one, one sentence in a sermon that was politically uh, inspired and politically motivated. And basically what is your said, take on pedophiles? What? What is your take on pedophiles? Again, same thing. We, pedophilia, we can put over here, but once the government starts taking action on it, they're going to they're going to be some people who think that action is too harsh, and some people who think it isn't harsh enough. Again, you, that, that's my again, that's my take. We we need to be talking about this, and we need to be bold in talking about morality. But when we start talking about specific political solutions to that moral problem. We're getting off base, I think, and we're and we're going to alienate people. Well, the, probably the most contemporary thing we're dealing with right now is the, the, the uh, issues of how to treat women. Exactly. And one one accusation. Yeah. You're judged, pronounced guilty, and sentenced by yeah. media. So, and they may be guilty, but is it is that is that yeah. due process? But what we what do you see with Jesus? Where where does Jesus ever get involved in politics? I can think of one instance. They're bringing him a denarius and says, "You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar?" Trying to trap him, he says, "Whose picture's on the denarius?" He says, "It's Caesar's." At that time, it's probably Tiberius. And if you read anything about Tiberius. He's not a very admirable guy, especially at this time in his life. He's on Capri, living a life of debauchery. But Jesus says, render to Caesar's what Caesar's, to God what's God's. And that's, as far as I can tell, the, the most Jesus gets involved in politics. Our job, I think, is to change men's hearts. To do like Jesus did. We're, our job is, is to bring the gospel to them and let them see a better way. Yeah. Anyway, so anyway, I wanted to just make a quick aside there and, and make sure you understood what I meant last week when I said no politics. Morality is okay, politics is not. So, anyway, so Israel wants a king. And, you know, it, it, I wish that God would, you ever wish that God wouldn't give us some of the things we want? For Israel, it would have been much better, I think, if God had just said, look, you don't need a king. It's going to be, I mean, he's already told him it's going to be bad. But God says, he talks to Samuel, and Samuel is distraught here. He says, you know, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. It's me they've rejected. It's God. And he talks about, you know, reminds them, even coming out of Egypt, forsaking other gods. He said, just listen to their voice. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of your king who will reign over them. So he says, your job is to warn them. You're doing that. But if they are bullheaded and determined to have a king, let them have a king. Okay. So we're going to go on now.
Saul meets uh, meets Samuel. He runs into him. Saul is out looking for his father's donkeys, and he's looking for help from a seer. And it's interesting to me that we see there are little sort of parenthetical things put in the Bible. Language changes over time. So the writer here says, "Oh, you you got you guys don't know what a seer is." Well, see. Way back when, formerly in Israel, some of them would cry, they'd say, let us go to a seer. The one who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. So there's kind of a little explanatory note. But he takes Saul, Sam, and he says, he's not just, it's not just, oh, you get to be king. It's good to be the king. He says, you have a purpose. You're going to save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen the suffering of my people because outcry has come to me. And I, I was kind of, I thought about taking this out. I, I first noticed it and I was, I was kind of excited about it. The more I look at it, the less convinced I is anything. But I was wondering is if this is a foreshadowing of what kind of king Saul is going to be. Because we compare it to Samson. Samson was told back in Judges that he would begin to deliver Israel from the land of the Philistines. And he kind of gives Saul the same charge. And I sort of see Saul and Samson as similar people. They both, you know, I think Saul always meant well. And I think Samson meant well. But they just didn't execute. You know, and and I may be wrong. As we look through Saul, let me know if you see anything. But Saul was kind of trying to do, he thought he was doing what was right generally. But and, and, And poor old Samson he kind of thought the same thing but he never pulled it off either so maybe we've got a little foreshadowing by the Deuteronomist here anyway so we're getting a hint about Saul and uh, I want to step away for a minute we talk about being called for a purpose and you know Israel was chosen to be God's people what were they chosen for you know we all probably remember the line from Fiddler on the Roof or Tevye says just once God couldn't you choose somebody else but anyway, I think they had a purpose. And, and what, I, what I did is I went through uh, and did kind of the, the worst kind of Bible study you can do is concordance study. <laughs> but let's see how the, what, what God says about the nations. And before, before Samuel, the nations are all, you know, it's always you've you got to conquer the nations. You've got to not be perverted by them. But we start seeing a little different tune here. He says, I will extol you, Lord, among the nations. In other words, we're going to make God the God of more than Israel. Here again, declare his glory among the nations. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. There are a bunch of them. Psalms, all the families of the nations shall worship before him, not just Israel. And and what I want, want you to think about is the idea that Israel wasn't just chosen because God liked them. They were chosen for a purpose. They had an evangelical mission to carry the word of, of Jehovah, of Yahweh, to all the people. Let all the peoples praise you, not just Israel. Uh, again, God says, I'm going to judge all the people with equity. Let all the people praise you. We go over into Isaiah. He's uh, about talking about when God's house is going to be established and shall be raised in all the nations. It will stream to it. And I think this is the last one. Uh, again, the glory will appear over you. The nations will come to your life. Kings will brightness your own. So God doesn't just choose. You know, it's not because they're better looking or anything. It's because God chooses. When He chooses people, 
he has a purpose. It's it's there's it's not a free ride to just say, oh, I'm I'm God's special person, and sit back and enjoy. It's a, usually God says, I have I have a job that has needs to be done. Israel didn't do that job very well, and uh, so anyway, let's get on with Saul. Saul. Remember what's uh, Saul out doing? He's looking for his father's donkeys and he runs into Samuel and Samuel brings him in and has him spend the night. And he, they're out walking and he says, let's send the young man ahead and I want to talk to you. So he talks to, to Samuel or to Saul and tells him he's going to be king. He's anointed with oil and a kiss and he's given a sign. There's a lot of text up here, but what a sign! He says, you're going to meet two men. They're going to tell you the donkeys are found. Then you go from there. You're going to meet three men. They're going to Bethel. One will have uh, three, three kids. Another will have three loaves of bread. Another will have a skin of wine. You're going to be given two loaves of bread. <laughs> and he says, later on, you're going to meet prophets. And then they're going to be prophesying, and you're going to prophesy along with them. Now, have you ever, have you ever wished for a sign? I mean, I, you know... Sometimes in, in, in the down times and in the tough times, uh, I wish I could. I wish God would come to me and say, "You know, you're going to meet these guys. One guy's going to have three, two loaves, three loaves of bread. He's going to give you two. That's a pretty definite sign." So he gets this great sign, and again, we'd like that too. And you know, and it's very tempting. I, I, I think the temptation of Jesus. I think. Josh talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I sent him a note saying what I thought. And again, you can take that and $5, you can buy a cup of coffee with it. But anyway, Jesus is told, in, in one of the Gospels, Jesus is told, this is my beloved son. In the other two Gospels that record this temptation, it's, you are my beloved son. And I believe Jesus is told this, and his temptation is not so much to eat, but it's, if I were to turn these rocks into bread, I'd have a sign. And he says, no, it's written. I'm going to trust what God's told me rather than look for that sign. And if you think signs would be nice, think back to Israel. They saw the ten plagues. But what did they do when they got in the wilderness? Want to go back. And then I look at this passage. Remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man said, you know, I've got five brothers. And I don't want them to end up here. So why, you know, Father Abraham, send the messenger to him. What does Abraham say back to him? If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. We, we, we say we want signs, but if our heart, I, this is what I get from this, if our heart isn't in the right place, if we aren't seeking, we can get those signs in their we're going to ignore them. So anyway, it's interesting. Saul, like I say, gets, and I envy Saul. <laughs> I wish I could get a sign like that. Anyway, so anyway, he's been anointed, but Saul and Samuel are the only people who know about it. So Israel is summoned to Mizpah. The tribes all come by, and tribes and clans, and they choose by lot, and Benjamin's chosen. And then we go, and Saul is chosen. But we can't find him. Why? He's hiding out with a baggage when he's supposed to be named king. Does that tell us anything about Saul? Do we get an. What, what, what do we see about Saul 
from this. He's there to be made king, and he's hiding. Fearful. Yeah, he, he's he's kind of he's fearful. And again, getting back to we're talking about David and Saul. Is David fear? David is anything but. I mean, there are times I'm sure he's afraid, but David is a guy that, boy, when he gets ready to go, he goes. I mean, there's no second guessing. There's no hesitation. So, so we see a little of this sort of temerity, of this kind of fearfulness of Saul. So we go on and took his stand, and Saul is the telegenic candidate, isn't he? He's the guy we'd love to have on our ticket. He's head and shoulders taller. I imagine him having this great smile and good hair. And Hilton and I remember an Alabama governor, tall. His name was Big Jim Folsom. Big Jim Folsom, six foot seven, and he was a popular governor. He built a bridge across the Tennessee River, and my county voted for him in every election he ever ran. <laughs> so. The fairy guy didn't like him much, but the anyway. <laughs> so he's 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 named king. The people say, you know, long live the king or celebration. And again, remember we talked about Saul. You know, the, Samuel was told to write down the duties of the king and the prohibition. So he writes, told the people what the king can and can't do. He wrote some in a book, puts it before the Lord, and then he said, said okay. Party's over, inauguration's done, everybody go home. And then there are always a few. Some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? They despised him and brought him no present. But Saul holds his peace. So they're always going to be dissenters. So anyway, so that, again, things haven't changed a lot. So meanwhile, the crisis arrives with the Ammonites. Remember their... Uh, there are tribes across the Jordan. If you go back to, to Joshua and Judges, uh, was it Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben settled east of the Jordan? Don't, I'm not sure. That, I think those are the ones. So they were across the Jordan. Well, they're attacked by this fellow Nahash, and his deal is everybody he conquers, he gouges their right eye out. So Saul finds out there's no one left whose right eye is not, hasn't been gouged out. They're under siege. They appeal. And see, this is interesting. Paul's been, or Saul's been king for about a month. What's he doing? He's out plowing. And so he, he's called on to save these people. Does anybody remember how he summons the 12 tribes? He takes the animal and divides it. He's, yeah, he's got 12 oxen and he cuts, cuts them up and sends part of them to each tribe and says, you need to come help out. And amazingly, Having, you know, he's he's going from plowing. He assembles an arm, assembles an army, three hundred seventy thousand men. Pretty slick. So anyway, he's he takes over. And now look, victory has no critics. All it, people now say, "Who was it that said shall Saul reign or us? Where where are these doubters?" And and probably it was some of the doubters who were saying it. You know, to say, oh. Let's find those guys. Let's, let's kill them all. Those people who didn't bring Saul a present. But Saul is gracious in, in victory. He says, no one be put to death. For today, Jehovah, the Lord, has brought deliverance to Israel. This is a day of celebration. It's not today to take revenge. So, and it's, it's a change that occurs here. You know, we, Saul's already been anointed king at Mizpah. But now he says, let's go and renew the kingship. 
In other words, a new day has arisen. I'm, it's not just, I'm not going to be plowing. I read this to say I'm not going to be plowing anymore. I'm going to put those, those oxen away. So they go to Gilgal, they, they sacrifice, and uh, the offerings are given. And again, just a note, uh, people ignore, ignore the prophet, but everybody likes a winner. Successful war is always good for politics. Anyway, so Samuel is now kind of firmly established as king. Uh, the next thing you run to is Samuel's farewell address. And I, I think last words, even though we're going to see Samuel after this address, uh, they have a great significance, I think, to look and say, this is his last message to Israel. And, and, and he starts off, do not be afraid. Uh, things may be tough, they're not going to be easy, but don't be afraid. Even though, even though you've been bad, even though you've done all this Israel, all this bad, do not turn aside from following the Lord. Things can, you know, if serve Him with all your heart, do not turn aside from things that cannot profit for they're useless. Is that good advice? How many times do we go after things that are useless when we should be following God? And I'm going to skip down. Uh, this is a phrase that just kind of knocked me off my feet. You know, sometimes we think, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't sin much. Look what said. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by what? Ceasing to pray for you. Do you ever think about not praying for somebody as being a sin? Samuel at this stage in his life you know, he knows he's not got long and he says there may be nothing else I can do but I will not sin by stopping to pray for you that really struck me I don't know probably didn't get anybody up but you know to not pray for them would be a sin against God and I think about that when I, when I in the last few weeks since I did the, put this together I think a lot more about the people I need to pray for, the institutions, the things. You know that you don't you don't think about not pre- praying for somebody being a, a real sin, but it sure is. Fear the Lord, serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Said, and you know, consider the great things He's done for you. And then finally, a warning. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Okay, here's Saul's first mistake. And this is one again where I, I really feel for Saul. They're getting ready to go up against the Philistines. And Samuel says, I'll be there in a week. And a week has gone by. And, and he's not there. And, and the people begin to slip away. And Saul, I, I, I don't know, I, I kind of see a torn man here. So he says, bring the burnt offering to me and the offering of well-being. And instead of Samuel making the offerings, Saul goes ahead and makes the offerings. And of course, what happens immediately after he does this? Samuel arrives. Great timing, Samuel. You know, and and, and he condemns Saul. He says, what have you done? What were you thinking? It says, when I saw the people were slipping away and that you did not come within the days appointed, 
the Philistines were mustering at Mishmash. I said, now the Philistines will come upon me at Gilgal, and I've not entreated for the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. Would I think, what would I have done here? I'd probably done just what Saul did. I would have taken it, you know, maybe the lesson from this slide is be on time. <laughs> but anyway, Saul's made a mistake. But again, what does Saul do when confronted with these mistakes? Does he say, I've sinned before God, beg for forgiveness? He tries to explain it away. Again, I, I keep coming back to this. this is, I think when you look at David and Saul, and Saul, how they react to being confronted with their sins is a key in understanding why they were, they were what they were. So Samuel, again, the aging Samuel, says you've not kept the commandment which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And that's going to be David. And he pointed him to ruler over his people because you have not kept what is commanded. So the kingdom is starting to fall away. Okay, this is just kind of an interesting passage to show how in command the Philistines were. It's Iron Age in, in the Levant in Israel. And there's not, there are no blacksmiths for the Israelites. The Philistines are no dummies. They don't allow them to have swords or spears. So the Israelites say, hey, they go down and, and make the Philistines sharpen up their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles. They're going to war without swords, but they're going to go with sharp implements. And this kind of tells you how many control the Philistines were at this time. The fact that you couldn't have an Israelite blacksmith. So anyway, and we were told what they pay for it in, in this final sentence. So on the day of the battle, neither sword nor fear was found in position of any of the people of Saul and Jonathan. So Saul and Jonathan, they're going to go to war uh, with a definite uh, weapons gap. Uh, and the, the battle sort of starts off uh, in an odd way. Jonathan goes out on his own, engages some Philistines, kills 20 of them. Saul sees what's happening and goes into the battle with 600 men. And what we, what we see is that there were Hebrews fighting for the Philistines. But as the battle develops, as, as, as Saul is, is, is winning, they switch sides. So we read at the end of the battle, Saul's army has gone from 600 to 10,000. So God's bringing his people back to fight alongside Saul. Uh, now, what does Saul do? Again, he always finds a way to mess up. He says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this out and we're going to finish this today. And it's kind of like Vicky does me. We're not going to eat anything until this house is clean, until this floor is vacuumed. But Saul says, nobody's going to eat anything until I've, I've avenged my enemies. But when you make this statement and you make it to 10, or 10 people, it's a problem because his son Jonathan doesn't hear. And so he goes... And, and dips his hand in a honeycomb and brings out some honey and it, and it restores his energy, his eyes brightened up and the troops, they're very faint so they, uh, they find sheep and oxen calves from uh, the Philistines, they slaughter them and ate them. And what's, the, what's the significance of that phrase with the blood? 
Right. The life is in the blood. The Israelites are not supposed to eat blood. But they're in a hurry. They don't drain it. So Saul, he goes and says to his son, you're going to die, Jonathan. You went against what I, t- what I said. But there's sort of a revolt among the people. They say, Jonathan, well, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great victory in Israel? Remember this whole thing started when Jonathan goes down on his own and kills 20 men to inspire the army. Far from it as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground. For he has worked with God today. And so uh, Paul, Saul is forced to back, back down from his promise. And also, interesting enough, he stops pursuing. He stops his pursuit. This sort of throws a monkey wrench in the whole campaign. Again, uh, so we're going to, almost done. Next, we have, Saul goes up against the Amalekites. This is his big mistake. He's told to, to go after these people. God says, I'm going to punish the Amalekites for what they did when the Israelites left Egypt. He says, go after them, destroy all they have, kill both man, woman, child, infant, dock, sheep, camel, and donkey. He says, wipe them out. This may be we talked, if you're in the class on Joshua and Judges, I taught a couple of terms back. Some of this may be hyperbole, but we'll see. Anyway, so Saul goes on. He defeats the Amalekites. He said, uh, but he took King Agag alive and utterly destroyed the people with the edge of the sword, spared Agag, the best of the sheep, and of the cattle, and the fatlings, and the lambs, all that was valuable and would not utterly destroy them. All that was disposed and worthless, he destroyed. So Saul, despite what God told him, he said, well, you know, King Agag might be good for some ransom. And, uh, you know, these shame to let all these livestock go to waste. Again, a very, there's a pragmatic part of me that says, yes, all that's, that's, yeah, don't, why would you waste all that stuff? And so, before, you know, Samuel doesn't know what's going on, but God comes to him and he says, I regret that I made Saul king. He has turned back from following me. He has not carried out my commands. And, and again, you see the, the passion of Samuel. He's angry. He cried out to God all night. Maybe he was praying for forgiveness for Saul. We don't know. So, so the earlier verse where he made the sacrifice, yeah. and Samuel said, I've taken it. This is kind of a retelling of a more granular yeah. uh, look at his character. Yeah, we see the same kind of, you know, and it's expanded, I think, his sin. Okay. Okay. So Saul meets, Samuel meets Saul, and look, I mean, Saul just he starts, look how he starts off. He says, may you be blessed by God. I have carried out the commandment of Job. Really, Saul? <laughs> You're going to lie about it? Uh, look, and, and this is, of course, a famous. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of cattle that I hear? Oh, you did what you are supposed to? Well, how, come all, how come all this livestock is here? Saul said, they have brought them from the... But he didn't say, I. <laughs> they. <laughs> they did it. They brought them the Amalekites and uh, spared the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice. But the rest we, we, we utterly destroyed. But again, it's, it's not the response of a David to say, I've sinned. They did it. Uh, okay. 
So, this is Samuel's response. I've written it. This is this is Hebrew poetry, and a bit the. If you haven't studied Hebrew poetry, it's really simple. Instead of rhyming sounds, they rhyme ideas. So, does 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 God have great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice, or, in, or is His delight in the obedience to His word? Surely, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, don't talk to me about sacrifice when you when you violated God's word. And again, the parallelism. The rebellion is no less than a divination. Stubbornness is like an inquiry and iniquity and idolatry. Same idea expressed two different ways. And again, down here. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. So that's kind of the final word to Saul. Uh, and Saul here, actually, after being confronted and forced to, he does say, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. I fear the people who obeyed your voice. So he's, he's kind of caught and he has to confess. He prays for pardon. He says, return with me so I may worship the Lord. And Samuel says, I'm not going to. You've rejected the word of the Lord and God has rejected you. Uh, and as he's going away, the prophets, they're, they're always... Prophets are big on visual aids, you know. And so as he's going away, Saul reaches out and he tears off the hem of, the, of his robe. And Samuel turns around and said, Just like you tore this robe, God has torn the kingdom from you and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. God will not recant or change his mind, for he is not immortal so that he should change his mind. So Saul admits he's sinned. And actually, uh, Samuel sort of recants. And he actually goes back now with Saul and helps let Saul worship. And finally, uh, we'll, we're almost done. Saul is, is scared. He's about to go into battle against the Philistines again. Uh, Samuel is dead. He can't go to Samuel. He uses the Urim, which is sort of like casting lots and a prophecy. He can't get an answer. So he decides to go to a witch, to a medium. And, they, and he's banned them from the land. But he's going to go himself. So he disguises himself and he goes in. He talks to the woman. He says, I want you to bring up a spirit. I'm going to tell you who it is and I want you to bring that spirit up. And the woman says, whoa, you know what Saul did? You know, is, is, is this a sting? Are you trying to, to trap me so that I'll be executed? And, and, and Saul swears, as, as Jehovah lives, no punishment will come upon you. He says, who shall I bring up for you? He says, bring up Samuel. And notice here, when the woman does bring up Samuel, she screams. She said, this actually worked. <laughs> it's not my normal scam that I do when I bring people up. I actually call for a spirit and here he is. So she, she's, a, she's as shocked as Saul and she says, why have you to see me? You're Saul. She sees everything now. And so Saul says, what do you see? She, she says, I see a divine being. She tells him it's an old man in a robe. She knows it's Samuel. Samuel says, why have you disturbed me? And he says, I'm scared. The Philistines are coming against me. God has turned away and answers me no more by prophets or dreams. So I've summoned you. And, and, and Samuel tells him, uh, says, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. You're not going to survive the battle. And God will give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Remember we started off saying, Saul's made king with a purpose. His purpose is to defeat the Philistines and it's not going to happen. 
so, in, and just as a note here, in between here, David actually offers to fight on the side of the Philistines. And uh, Aki says, no, said, uh, say, uh, says, no, go back now and be peacefully, do nothing to displease the lords of the Philistines. He says, don't, we don't want you fighting with us, but, you know, go back. So anyway, final thing, uh, the Philistines overtake Saul, uh, the brow goes on, he's wounded, and he asks his armor bearer to, to run him through so that the, the Philistines won't do it. He was unwilling, so fall, Saul falls on his own sword. So that's a quick look at Saul. Lots of lessons from Saul, and uh, I'm just going to flash these up here because we're out of time. But, you know, Saul is, to me, a real tragic figure. I, there are parts of Saul I really like. I, I, I think he meant well. But I think there's a lesson for us is sometimes meaning well isn't enough. We've got to do what's right. You've got to follow through. So anyway, next week we're going on to David. We're going to see, I think, a very different man. This man who, despite getting a lady pregnant and killing her husband, is a man after God's own heart, whatever that means. So anyway, we'll, and we'll talk about that next week. So thanks for coming, uh, and hopefully we'll see you next week.